0: Welcome to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. Forget frequently asked questions, forget common sense, common knowledge, or Googling for information. How about advice from a genius in their field instead? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are the geniuses of their profession. Richard has made it his life's mission to interview the geniuses of their fields in areas such as AI, 3D printing, quantum computing, blockchain and Bitcoin and more. Don't miss out on amazing podcasts with geniuses. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and go to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com and subscribe today.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have uh, Dr. Swapan. Akilesh He's a board certified neurologist and a sleep specialist. And uh, we're going to be talking about the sleep type issues. So Swapan, thanks for coming.
2: You're most welcome. Pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, I know the sleep world isn't just one thing. So within it, what is your uh, specialty and why? What do you focus on?
2: Yeah, so, so I'm a neurologist and a sleep specialist. I uh, completed my residency in neurology. Um, And then I did a one-year fellowship in sleep medicine, focusing on sleep disorders in general. So my practice uh, focuses on the whole spectrum of uh, sleep disorders that we see, uh, ranging from snoring to obstructive sleep apnea to uh, insomnia, which is difficulty in uh, initiating and maintaining sleep, to other less common sleep disorders like acting out dreams, sleepwalking. And restless legs. So those are some of the sleep disorders that we encounter.
1: Okay. So within all the sleep disorders, which one do you feel like you're particularly good at uh, improving because of your neurology bent?
2: Yes. So so the most common sleep disorders that we encounter are sleep apnea uh, and insomnia. So those are the bread and butter uh, sleep disorders that we come across as a neurologist. We commonly see this overlap between. Neurology and sleep and uh, sleep disorders uh, tend to occur very commonly with other neurological problems um, so we see uh, disorders like narcolepsy and hypersomnia in which individuals are very sleepy during the daytime so so you know we we have a sleep lab in which we do tests to figure out whether a person has something like narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia um, and then um as as I mentioned earlier, the uh, with increasing number of patients with neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson's disease, uh, we see sleep disorders um, uh, very commonly in in, in these uh, folks as well. So 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 that's what my focus has been on.
1: So yeah, why would um, uh, hypersomnia is what does the person needs to sleep a lot or wants to sleep a lot or both? So you can, let's talk about that a little bit. What happens there?
2: Yeah. So so with hypersomnia, hypersomnia is basically a symptom in which a person feels excessively sleepy in the daytime. And there can be various reasons for this symptom. The most common being lack of adequate sleep at night. In fact, about uh, a third of the entire population of the U.S. does not get enough sleep at night. So that is the most common cause of excessive sleepiness. The The other common cause for excessive sleepiness would be underlying sleep disorders like sleep apnea. So if a person stops breathing in their sleep and their sleep is being disrupted and they're not getting good quality sleep, then they may have this symptom of excessive daytime sleepiness. Sometimes excessive daytime sleepiness can be seen along with other medical and even psychiatric problems or mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. If we have ruled all of these out, some people are just very sleepy. And no matter how much they sleep they get at night, they continue to have excessive sleepiness in the daytime. And one such disorder is called narcolepsy. And with narcolepsy, there is the brain is not able to sort of compartmentalize the sleep and awake states. So even when the person is should be alert and awake in the daytime, sleep intrudes into this wakeful state and makes the person very sleepy. Uh, The other condition um, is called idiopathic hypersomnia. And idiopathic means we don't understand a whole lot about why these individuals are excessively sleepy. So even after we've looked for underlying sleep apnea, mental health problems, um, and anything else, any medications causing it. We're not able to find a specific reason for it. And these folks are just very sleepy. Uh, there is a lot of research going on in this area to figure out why these individuals are sleepy, but we still um, ha- have, have some work to do in this area.
1: So uh, when you say hypersomnia, to what degree is someone wanting to sleep versus a normal person? Normal being, I guess, six, seven, eight hours a night What do hypersomniacs do? Do they take naps all day long? Do they sleep in a huge 12-hour chunk? Like, what happens?
2: Yes, So, so a normal individual needs about seven to eight hours of sleep, and that varies from person to person, but by and large, most of us need about seven to eight hours of sleep. So with someone with hypersomnia, such as narcolepsy, these individuals sleep for about seven, eight hours, and then they wake up and they feel refreshed. But as the day progresses, they become very sleepy and they have to take naps. And sometimes they inadvertently fall asleep, especially while performing monotonous activities like working on a computer or while driving, which can be extremely dangerous. So these folks with narcolepsy, even though they feel refreshed upon awakening, they then get sleepy during the daytime. The other condition is called idiopathic hypersomnia, and these folks tend to sleep a lot. They sleep for 10 or 12 hours at night, and despite that, when they wake up, they are not refreshed. They feel very tired and sleepy, and they continue to feel that way all through the day, and despite taking naps during the day, they still are not refreshed and continue to feel sleepy and tired. So that's the the difference in the sleepiness that we encounter uh, in individuals with hypersomnia
1: well do people that have hypersomnia do they tend to have apnea or a lot of arousals like do you you know I would think that you would characterize the nature of their sleep and see if they're having multiple arousals or apnea or snoring or something that disturbs them maybe that's why the sleep's not restful
2: yeah, so that's a very interesting thought, and that's why the the first step in someone who presents with hypersomnia or excessive sleepiness is to get a good history of whether they're getting adequate sleep. And the second step is to perform a sleep study, either in the sleep lab or a home sleep study, uh, preferably a sleep study in the sleep lab, where we are able to find out if the person has acne or they stopped breathing and that's interfering with their sleep, or they're having a lot of arousals. some Some people move their legs a lot, which is called periodic leg movements, and that can cause awakenings. Um, But these individuals with narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia uh, do not have apnea or leg movements, which is disrupting their sleep. And that's why it's very interesting that these individuals do not have any sort of abnormal findings on the sleep overnight sleep study. But they continue to be very sleepy in the daytime.
1: So you can't tell during their sleep by observing it. They're not. They don't seem to have any arousals or problems with their sleep. They appear to be sleeping, go through the stages. Everything looks okay, but they're awakening and just
2: they just don't feel well. They don't feel right. Correct. They don't feel rested. Correct. Hmm. Yes, and and then we Here. there is another another test called multiple sleep latency testing. So so it, it, with this test, what we do is. We do an overnight sleep study to make sure that these individuals don't have sleep apnea or something else that we need to treat. And then these individuals stay in the sleep lab uh, after they wake up in the morning. And then we keep them in the sleep lab and they do five naps at two hour intervals. And we record their brain waves and we uh, monitor how quickly they're likely to fall asleep in each of those five naps. And then we calculate an average of how quickly they fell asleep. A normal individual will not fall asleep in less than eight minutes on during, after a good night's sleep, when they're tested during naps in the daytime, they will not fall asleep in less than eight minutes on an average. These individuals with hypersomnia are very sleepy. And on an average, we find that they fall asleep in less than eight minutes on those five naps. So that's how we are objectively able to measure how sleepy they are in the daytime.
1: Oh, weird. I mean, do you look at their, you know, the levels of different uh, biomarkers and things like that? I mean, I don't know, like in the non-idiopathic versions, what is causing this? And then idiopathic, I guess you don't know, but... There's at least some flavors of it where you know the cause, right? And what is it?
2: Yes, so so luckily uh, for narcolepsy, we know the 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 uh, underlying biomarker and the and the root cause of it. So in the brain, there are these chemicals or neurotransmitters, and one of them is called orexin or hypocretin, and that's a, that's a chemical which is. Uh, produced and released in a very small area of the brain in the hypothalamus. And this transmitter is responsible for compartmentalizing awake and sleep states. And in individuals with narcolepsy, uh, we have found that they are deficient in this orexin or hypocretin. In fact, we can measure it uh, in the spinal cerebrospinal fluid, so sometimes we even pursue what's called a lumbar puncture, in which we analyze the cerebrospinal fluid, and in these individuals with narcolepsy, specifically narcolepsy type one, uh, have very low levels of CSF uh, hypocretin or orexin, uh, and 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 we we know that you know because of the deficiency of this uh, substance, these individuals are very sleepy in the daytime. In fact. Um, uh, what we find is that uh, these individuals even get REM sleep um, during the daytime. Normally, REM sleep is seen only after about 90 minutes of um, regular sleep that the person goes into REM sleep. But in individuals with narcolepsy, we find that they get into REM sleep directly in in even um, during wakefulness. So that's a biomarker which we have found in individuals with narcolepsy. With idiopathic hypersomnia, we still have not found specific biomarkers yet.
1: So physiologically, um, what, what, does it uh, go after people? Is it more men than women? Is it older people, younger? Is it after a sudden trauma? Like when does it tend to occur?
2: Yeah, so, so most cases of hypersomnia um, are idiopathic. We don't know why they occur. It's a disease which is seen in the younger folks. So so narcolepsy typically is seen in individuals between 15 and 25 years of age. We see it both in men and women. Rarely do do we see individuals who have had a history of head injury or sometimes brain infections, and then they later on progress to get this hypersomnia or excessive sleepiness. But most of the times, we don't have a... Sort of precipitating event or insult that we can pinpoint to.
1: Are there any theories, or do you have any? I mean, do you have your own theory and what could be causing it, and and you know also how detrimental is it? How much does it affect the person's life, and does it go away on its own or is it permanent?
2: Yes. Yeah, so um, so so narcolepsy and hypersomnia can be can can be associated with significantly you know a poor quality of uh, life it can affect, you know, daily activities. Um, as I mentioned, it occur, it's seen in a relatively young group of the population. So uh, if someone is a student, or they're just starting their jobs, and they're feeling very sleepy, uh, unfortunately, that can come across as the person being lazy. And that may not be the case, they may be having an underlying medical problem. And that's why they're very sleepy. So it can definitely impact a student's performance, uh, job performance, it can uh, lead to safety issues. Um, uh, as I mentioned, a person feels sleepy, especially with monotonous activities such as driving, and it can take only a less than a fraction of a second to be involved in a car accident. So it can be very dangerous. Not only that, you know, uh, it can also be a risk for other occupational hazards. For example, if someone is A truck driver or is is operating a forklift, then you know that can significantly uh, you know increase the risk of an accident. Um, So certainly these uh, hypersomnia disorders can uh, adversely impact a person's uh, quality of life.
1: Interesting. Any other uh, conditions that uh, you deal with that aren't you know common? I mean hypersomnia seems to be one. Narcolepsy. Spoken about a little bit, but any other unusual ones that you see that are uh, that are you know I guess important, relative, uh, relevant clinically.
2: Yes, so so uh, you know we see you know fascinating uh, neurological and sleep disorders. One that comes to mind is something called REM behavior disorder. So we we divide sleep into two types: non-REM and REM sleep. REM is R-E-M, which stands for rapid eye movement sleep. And it's called rapid eye movement sleep because when we observe these individuals who are sleeping, we see that their eyes are moving in REM sleep. So that's why it's called rapid eye movement sleep. And when we are in REM sleep, we dream. So the dreaming occurs in REM sleep. Now, we have this natural mechanism in which our entire body gets paralyzed when we are dreaming. So we cannot act out our dreams. For example, if I'm in REM sleep and I'm dreaming about you know, being involved in a fight, I will be able to dream, but my body won't be able to act out that dream. So that's a natural mechanism, uh, a safety mechanism that the body has. It, the, the, the respiratory muscles or the breathing muscles continue to work. So we are able to breathe, but we are not able to move. The other part of sleep is called non-REM sleep, which stands for non-rapid eye movement sleep. And we do not dream a whole lot in this part of sleep. And the eyes don't move, but the body is able to move. So when we change our body positions, when we're moving in our sleep, it occurs in the non-REM sleep. Now, there is a, when, when, when this does not function properly or work properly, we see a disorder which is called REM sleep behavior disorder. So these folks with REM sleep behavior disorder present with acting out their dreams. So many times we, we we see folks who come to our clinics and it's the bed partner or spouse who brings up this problem in which the person may have punched or hit them. And when the person is uh, woken up, they are able to recall the dream they were having. So Some way muscles of the body are not paralyzed and the person is able to move and act out their dream. For example, if they're dreaming about being involved in a fight and punching someone, then that's what they're gonna do to their spouse. So again, this can be very dangerous and can lead potentially lead to injuries. One interesting point is that we have we now know that REM sleep behavior disorder is closely linked with parkinson's disease and some other parkinsonian disorders and what is fascinating about this disorder is that sometimes REM sleep behavior disorder can occur as the first manifestation of parkinson's disease sometimes it may occur even decades before the onset of parkinson's disease so so that that's a very interesting uh, area and it potentially opens up in the future, if there are any treatment modalities which we find that can slow or arrest the progression of Parkinson's disease, then these medications may be we may be able to use them early on, even before the symptoms of Parkinson start.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So again, what is it in the body that paralyzes people when they sleep? They're at a certain stage so that they don't act out their dreams.
2: Yeah, so so uh, in the uh, brainstem area, there is an area called the pons. And that's where the, the signals, once a person goes into REM sleep and they start dreaming, then the signals from this area in the brain travel down to the spinal cord. And in the spinal cord are located the neurons or nerves, which then give signals to the entire you know, musculature or muscles of the body. And so these signals from the brain travel down to the spinal cord and inhibit those signals, you know, that supply or give, give, give uh, information to the muscles and thereby paralyze them. Mm,
1: It's amazing. So, I mean, how prevalent are these conditions, hypersomnia, narcolepsy, this, uh, you know, the lack of paralyzation when you're sleeping, are they, are they really rare or are they uh, common?
2: So um, typically in a sleep clinic, the most common disorders would be obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia. So by comparison, uh, these are not very common problems. Um, but in a tertiary care sleep center, we, we do come across uh, uh, these problems not infrequently. But I would say that these problems affect less than 1% of the population. Uh, in comparison to sleep apnea, which is as mm. high as ten to twenty percent of the population.
1: Right. Yeah. This is far more rare. Mm-hmm. what about the? Um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people about sleep apnea, about snoring, etc. Where is sleep science going in your experience over the next few years? What's new that's coming? You know, new understanding or new treatments?
2: Yeah. So I think uh, the the advances are going to happen in 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 this wearable technology, uh, we see a lot of that gadgets come up, which are able to, you know, monitor sleep, uh, you know, hopefully accurately. I think that um, when we do sleep studies, sometimes they're very cumbersome. We have attached a lot of wires on patients. And as we move forward, better equipment, minimal contact. Sleep studies, which are able to get the the information without interfering with the person's ability to fall asleep because of the the the, the wires and the equipment needed. I think in the future we need um, you know continue to develop better treatment for sleep apnea. CPAP is a very effective treatment, but obviously compliance is is a problem. Um, uh, so so moving forward, we need to continue to develop uh, uh, better methods um, um, of, um, you know, treating sleep apnea. Um, uh, The other area that I see uh, develop is things like scoring of sleep studies. So we get all this information uh, from the whole night, which is data worth eight or nine hours, and the technician has to uh, go through the entire night 30 seconds at a time, and score each uh, episode of, you know, pause in breathing and what type of sleep it is, and that can be very cumbersome. And I think moving forward with technological advances, I see that, you know, hopefully that will get simplified.
1: Okay. Um, Are there any uh, subclinical treatments needed for apnea that's not quite apnea, you know, snoring again that's not quite apnea, or People that have something that's not characterized, just they, you know, they wake up twenty times a night. Uh, they don't know why, or they wake up and they're up for a couple hours and they go back to bed. You know, things that are maybe very disruptive, but they can't figure out why, and they're not necessarily apnea or any of these classic uh, problems.
2: Yeah, so so I think getting good good history information about about those symptoms. Um, uh, so snoring in its in itself is not harmful, but but it can be a manifestation or symptom of underlying sleep apnea. So if a person is having symptoms, a symptom of loud snoring, and they're waking up multiple times during the night, then you know I, I, I would think that a sleep study would be needed to make sure that they don't have apnea. But then we also see insomnia, right? Insomnia is very common, which is difficulty in initiating and maintaining sleep. And Again, just like apnea, it is seen in about 10% of the population. And sometimes we see that it gets precipitated by something, a job loss or death of a loved one or going through a bout of depression, uh, can't precipitate the insomnia or trouble in falling asleep. But what we see is that with time, even after the underlying cause of the insomnia has gone, the difficulty with sleep continues. And and the reason for that is that over time, the brain relearns in a negative way at a subconscious level that the bed and the bedroom is not the place to sleep. So even after they get a new job or uh, they are over the depression, the insomnia continues to be an independent problem. And that can lead to a person uh, waking up multiple times during the night. So that's a very common problem that we see, and it's uh, sort of a conditioned response that the brain develops over time, and it forgets that the bed is the place to sleep. Uh, In fact, it starts thinking that the bed is the place to stay awake, so whenever the person tries to go to bed and sleep, the response that the brain generates or triggers is being awake.
1: Yeah, I can see that suddenly it would be very tough because of the interesting... Um, okay. Well, what do you see as uh, ahead for you with your research over the next, uh, you know, couple of years, or is it just more clinical work? I mean, where are you headed with your own work? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I think my my focus is is uh, clinical work, um, uh, but you know, I still find it surprising uh, how little we know about sleep awareness uh, about sleep disorders is increasing, uh, but I think we're still at the tip of the iceberg. As I mentioned, you know these are very common problems affecting 10, 20% of the population. A third of the population does not get enough sleep, and getting inadequate sleep is associated with other health problems like heart disease and hypertension and increased risk for stroke and increased risk for depression. So I think a lot needs to be done in educating people about the importance of getting adequate sleep and the symptoms for identifying common sleep disorders, given that we have good treatment that can improve the quality of life of the individual.
1: Very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your clinic and if they're close to you to attend? Uh,
2: so I I work at the, the Veterans Affairs or the VA hospital. So so my mm. clinical work is focused uh, on veterans. So, so I don't have a separate clinic on my own. I, I work at the VA.
1: Okay, okay. Well, I guess uh, last question then. So, all right, I'll edit that out. So, I'm just going to ask more generally. I'll ask you again. Okay. So, you know, uh, what's the best way for people to uh, get in contact or ask questions? Um, I believe you mentioned you work with veterans. So, uh, you know, someone's a veteran and they're listening, or they have a family member that is, and that person or them are having sleep problems. What's the best way that they can learn more?
2: Um, so, uh, the VA has um, has uh, you know specialized sleep centers so the the Atlanta VA has a is a is a tertiary care sleep center where we are six sleep physicians we have an eight bed sleep lab so where we you know run you know all sorts of uh, sleep studies uh, and treat the entire spectrum of sleep disorders some other um uh, helpful websites. I would think the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, their website uh, has some educational resources. There's a new organization called American Alliance for Healthy Sleep, uh, which is sort of an op- offshoot from the ASM uh, that not only includes physicians, but also uh, has patients uh, uh, as members. So, um, so that's the uh, an important educational resource as well.
1: Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, thank, thank you, very you
0: much. so much. You've been listening to the Future Tech Edition of the Finding Genius podcast. This podcast is information only, no advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe today by going to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com.